Welcome, everyone, to the last 2023 episode of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. So excited. I hope you are still enjoying the 12 days of Christmas. You'll notice I have a variety of decorations and fun. Let me just lift you up a little bit. Yep. See, we're all still celebrating here. So I hope you're still celebrating as well. Now, I wanted to end our year by talking a little bit about holiday gift giving. We talked to James a little bit about this, but I wanted to delve into it just a little deeper. Because, of course, if we were living in Tudor times, even though December 25th might have come and gone, our gift giving would not have happened. So I want to talk a little bit about that. But before I jump into that and the gift giving in Tudor times, I do want to thank each and every one of you who are listening for the gift of listening, your time, your attention. I want to thank all of you who have so kindly sent messages and giving me ratings and just some really nice remarks. And those of you who've shared with a friend and those of you who have subscribed, on podcast stations and areas. I also want to thank all of you who have subscribed on YouTube. It's grown really quickly and I'm so grateful. It helps so much. So I want to thank you for that gift of your time and energy and support from the bottom of my heart. And I also want to give a huge shout out to my patrons who are Literally, the lifeblood of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics, you make the podcast happen. You make it possible. You make it happen. And I absolutely couldn't do without you. Now, we have a couple of recent prize winners who get a special shout out. Christine and Lee have had our, you know, won our most recent giveaway, our prizes, and they represent all of the people, both of them and others who engage with the podcast in such fun ways. So, Thank you, thank you, thank you, patrons. You you just mean everything to me. And we have lots of fun coming for patrons next year. So if you haven't joined yet, now's a good time. Speaking of thank yous, I also want to thank all of the guests who have joined me in the past year during 2023. It's been amazing. We have heard about murder mysteries, fictional and factual, some of which have not yet been solved. We've heard about famous mothers and daughters, famous husbands and wives. We've listened to people talk about art and artists and peeked behind the scene at various royal courts, witches and tea parties, pirates and princesses. We've discussed events um, from before the Conqueror through the Middle Ages, the Tudors, the Stuarts, Hanoverians. Victoria and the Windsors right up to the present monarch, the coronation of King Charles III. So I I don't want to thank every single person who's come on. I do thank you all. I won't read all your names, although I am putting out some social media that thanks everybody by name. But I do want to give a special shout out to Nathan Amin, who joined us twice during 2023. First to talk about one of the most successful, quite frankly, I think the most successful Tudor royal marriages, that of Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. And then despite his very, very busy schedule, he joined us again recently 
to talk about the new findings and some of the new controversies surrounding the princes in the tower and what happened to them and whether Richard III was involved and whether we can know that. So I really appreciate him coming on. Just to let you know, our first guest of 2023 was Jenna Holman. And we wrapped things up. Our final guest of 2023 was last week with James Taft. So it has been an extraordinary year. And none of this would have been possible without my amazing creative director and business manager, Lindsay Lindstrom, who helps me make the magic happen and keeps these things moving in the past, present, and the future. And I really appreciate her. Now, let's jump into some of the fun that's going to be happening next year, because in 2024, we're going to be starting some new activities here at Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. There will be an ebook published in February, the top 10 Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. I want you to start thinking who your top 10 would be, because I'm going to ask for some help in selecting the figures that we feature. This will be an ongoing feature, not every month, but maybe every quarter we'll update and see if we have some new leaders, new winners. And we're going to start by asking our patrons who are some of their favorites, who would be their top 10. So get ready for that. This spring, starting this spring, we'll also have some live events, some in person starting in the DC area. But as you know, I travel quite a bit. So we'll have some in-person events in other areas as well. We'll also have some live online events if you don't happen to live where I will be. So get ready for that. Of course, more details to come. And there are some terrific guests we've already been talking to for next year. If there's someone you would really love to hear from, please do let Lindsay or me know and we'll see what we can do because we're always looking for new ideas here. And we love to hear from you and what you're wanting to hear about. So here's my question for you. How are you spending this week? This week, what happens in your life in the days following December 25th? So in modern days, December 25th, afterwards, you wake up on the 26th, there's sometimes a bit of a letdown. Um, there's often a quick return to work. Mostly the kids are out of school, but those brand new toys that were so exciting on the 25th may have lost a little bit of their magic by the next day. Sometimes being home for all those days can be a bit challenging for mom and dad, especially if mom and dad are supposed to go back to work, back to normal. This was not the case in Tudor times. No one was thinking about back to normal on December 26th. In fact, the holiday season was just beginning. We would not have even, if we were living in Tudor times, we wouldn't have even exchanged our gifts yet. So let's talk a little bit about that because the exchange of gifts was really important in Tudor times. It was part of the Christmas celebration, but remember the 12 days of Christmas start on the 25th and go on from there. And so the gifts were exchanged on January 1st, a week after all those celebrations had begun. Now, the process of gift giving changed in more than the 100 years of the Tudor dynasty, but I want to just dip in because we see some of the personalities of the monarchs coming through as we see the ways, the presentation, the process, the protocols that were observed as gifts were given and as gifts were received. So with many things, just, just like so many things in Tudor times, giving gifts 
was embedded with political importance. You could make or break your political career by doing it right or doing it wrong. And so with kings and queens, as well as members of the nobility, members of the Privy Council, those who were favored of the monarch, getting things right during the Christmas season, catching the monarch's eye and giving just the right gift could really catapult your career. So it's not so much the children clamoring around and ripping paper off gifts that was so chaotic and important, but it was a very important time. And it was a time of anticipation and joy and disappointment as gifts were given and received. Now, the exchange of gifts at the Tudor court at New Year's was very important from a political standing from a social standing and financially too. You were showing off, you had wealth and power. This was true throughout all of Europe. And in the case of the Tudors, the gifts were recorded very carefully every year on gift rolls. Several survived. We'll look at some in particular. Four survived from the reign of Henry VIII and several from the reign of Elizabeth. But let's go back even further and start with the reign of Henry VII. Now, Henry VII came to the throne in um, sort of iffy ways, if you want to say it that way. He defeated Richard III, sort of seized the throne. And the early years of his reign in particular were marked by rebellions, very serious rebellions, and alternate claims to the throne. And yet, Henry VII really did lean in to the tradition of gift giving. It may have been a way of sort of putting behind him the troubles of the year before. So there was a strict protocol that James Taft describes whereby the king and queen would receive their gifts. So of course, of course, the first gift goes to the king. So early on the morning, not of Christmas Day, again on New Year's Day, January 1st, a knock would come at the door of the king's privy chamber. And with great procession, it would be announced that a gift had arrived from the queen. The door would be open, the queen's messenger would enter and present her gift to the king. Thereafter, to the sound of trumpets and fanfare, other messengers would come in order of status to present their gifts to the king. Now, when that was finished, then gifts would be presented to the queen. And the queen's first gift, of course, would come from the king. So he would send a messenger to her chamber, knock on the door. A servant would announce that a gift was there from the king. The door would open, the messenger would come in, and then great fanfare, and the process would be repeated. It was really important to show up on time. If you were there as the messenger from a member of the gentry or the clergy to produce and give and just present in a marvelous way, your gift to the monarch. Because the way gifts were presented, the words that were spoken by a servant who is representing his lord and lady, all that was very important as well. And all of this was recorded on the gift rolls. Now, um, in 1487, we learn from Nathan Amin that the king had had a particularly busy and quite bad year. 
Well, there was there were some bright spots. His son Arthur had turned one, and he had crowned his wife Elizabeth of of, of York as queen. But he had also been required to fight a battle to keep his throne and had just defeated Lambert Simnel at the Battle of Stokefield. So it had been a tough year. And he is described again as, quote, kept his Christmas full honorably. So he leaned right into Christmas, according to contemporary records. And it's described as having a great deal of food. The king and queen feasted regularly and honorably, and they played games such as chess and cards. Here we also have a specific mention of disguisings or disguises at the court celebration. So we're beginning to see definitely these, what later becomes a full play and is now a pageant of some sort happening. So This year also gives us a little window into Henry VII as a gift giver. We find that at Greenwich in the Great Hall, where the gifts were given that year, many gifts were given, and in particular, the records show us gifts to the officers of arms, and they are mostly gifts of money. It seems like that is the main and possibly the only, but certainly the primary gift that Henry VII would give was money. And when you think about it, that's not a bad thing. Even now, it's often sort of a relief to get money because money is very versatile. You can use it for what you want. You avoid that awkward moment of getting something and you can't really think of how to use it. Oh, thanks so much. Money, always useful. The other thing is the Tudor court was always on the move. Now, if you imagine that you have a friend who's moving right after the holidays, you don't want to give that person a big, awkward, heavy gift that they'll have to pack and transport to their new home. Well, this was always the case in Tudor times. So again, money, pretty easy to transport. It was a very popular gift throughout the dynasty, although some other things became more popular as things went on. Now, when we come to the reign of Henry VIII, he decided gift giving should be a little more public because, of course, he did. He wanted everything to be in public. He wanted gifts given to him to be seen by all kinds of people and the magnificently generous gifts he gave to be seen by all kinds of people. So instead of the gift giving and receiving taking place in the privy chamber, in the time of Henry VIII, it was in the presence chamber. And it was really important, again, how the gifts were presented. And so we have a case in 1539 of someone writing to Thomas Cromwell and asking, how should my servant present this gift? I've already decided on the gift, but tell me how the servant should present it. What should he say? How should he approach the king? That was really important. There's a record the year before in 1538 of it going very well when John Hussey, a member of the Lyle family, delivered a gift to the king and it was described, the the gift giving was described, Cromwell was at that time announcing who was coming. He announced, here cometh my Lord Lyle's man, okay, right on time, and he presented the gift to the king and later wrote back to Lord Lyle that he gave it, quote, in his own hands. So he was allowed to address, go right up to the king 
and give it to him directly. And he said that the king asked how my lord and lady were. So the king even asked about Lord and Lady Lyle. That is a full on success as a gift. So that can really make a difference. And the king can be very well served and the gift giver can be very well served if it all goes well. In the case of Henry VIII, it didn't always go quite that smoothly. There is the famous incident in 1532. Now, I've mentioned the gift rolls, and at the top of the gift roll is always the gift given to the king in order of rank and the gift given from the king in the order of rank. Well, if you imagine on the from the king side, the first highest ranking person after the king would, of course, be the queen if she's in favor. And during Henry VIII's time, not always the case. In 1532, in fact, we see an example where that space was left blank. It's not that Catherine Howard didn't send Henry VIII a gift. In fact, she did. But she had by this time been banished from court and expressly forbidden to write or send anything to the king. And he was not pleased when her servant arrived and was announced presenting a gift to the king. Now, remember, he's doing this in the presence court, not in his own privy chamber. And it is full not only of his household, but of visitors, ambassadors, people from other countries, representatives of the church, including the Pope's representatives. All of these people who believe Catherine of Aragon is the true queen of England, and that it is a pure scandal that Anne Boleyn is the one sitting at the queen's side, acting like at the king's side, acting like she's queen. So people are very unhappy about this. And now Catherine has publicly sort of called out Henry on it, and he has to return her gift. He can't accept it. He has made his bed, so to speak. Ha ha. And he is he is committed to marrying Anne Boleyn. In fact, it's possible Anne Boleyn is, if not, almost pregnant already. So what's a man to do? He has to return her gift, but he can't return it too early or she'll send it back. I mean, her messenger got there early. And if it goes back to her and there's time, she'll send it back. He'll have to publicly refuse it twice. So he has to take into consideration the tide and the time and everything in returning it so she can't send it again. And it does show up in the gift roll that there is a big blank by the queen's gift because she did not receive a gift from Henry and she was not allowed to give a gift to Henry. So this was one time when it didn't go well. And those gift rolls, they're so important. They teach us an incredible amount about who's in favor, who's out of favor, these awkward moments. They also include some really fun snippets we'll look at, but they were also used at the time. The monarch could review the gift roll. If he had a particular office he was ready to award and wasn't quite sure which of the courtiers or which of the nobles should get it, he could go back to the gift roll and see who had given him a really great gift. So that was available all the time. It was kind of handy. And again, it wasn't just the 
the church the, the church was also presented in order. It wasn't just the nobility and the gentry who showed up in order. There was also a very clear status among the clergy, and they also were expected to give gifts to the king to stay in favor. And that was just as important. You know, church members fall out of favor too. Just ask John Fisher. So um, now among members of the court, one of the favorite gifts in addition to money was food. Now that is something we give today, but some of the food given in Tudor times might not be quite as popular. For example, we have a description of someone giving a fat swan to Thomas Cromwell in hopes of getting um, Cromwell's favor on a case that's coming up. So pretty interesting there. Other food that was given included wild wild fowl, fish, meat, and poultry, and venison. Now, venison was a really important gift. It was not readily available. In fact, you had to hunt it. And most of the lands where you could hunt it were royal lands, or you might be invited to go on a hunting expedition with the king or with one of the very highest nobles. So if you had venison, it was quite extraordinary. If you were able to give a gift of venison, that was a huge coup. That was practically the golden ring of gift giving. That was really important. So gifts really were valued in different ways based on what they were and how hard they were to get a hold of. Another gift that was very important and very well received by um, some monarchs, particularly Elizabeth I, she also loved food, but she, her taste sort of went toward sweets. And she was given some really terrific sweets. Her reign, Elizabeth's reign, was another where gift giving was extremely important. There was a great exhibition at the British Library in 2021, and it said this about Elizabeth and gift giving. Quote, Elizabeth I presided over 45 New Year's gift-giving ceremonies and a remarkable 24 gift rolls survived from her reign, several of which are held at the British Library. Typically, the Elizabethan New Year gift roll consists of four or five parchment membranes sewn together end-to-end, measuring three to four meters in length. On one side, they list the names of donors or gift givers, in order of social rank and official status with a description of their gift to Elizabeth. The reverse contains a corresponding gift of those who receive a corresponding list of those who received gifts, usually gilt plate from the queen, end quote. So that tells us a few things. First of all, Elizabeth's gift of choice was usually gilt plate. And also just how many people were giving her gifts and receiving gifts. If you have perchance seen an exhibition at the British Library where the gift rolls were displayed, there was also one displayed at Folger Shakespeare Library several years ago. And more recently, there was a Tudor exhibition that toured the United States. I saw it in the, at the Met in New York, and there was one of the gift rolls. It wasn't laid all the way out, but you could tell it went on and on. It's extraordinary. And we do learn a great deal from these roles about not just the grandiose gifts, 
but some of the personal gifts. And I really like, there's a gift roll that survives 1562. And you can really hear some personal things. We learn that Kat Ashley, who has been Elizabeth's servant and friend, and she refers to her as a bringer upper, practically a mother figure. And that year she gave the queen 12 handkerchiefs that she had edged in gold and silver. These would be things that Elizabeth could keep close to her and a very personal gift from this woman that was such a good friend and supporter of her. Kat Ashley certainly made some mistakes in Elizabeth's lifetime, but in general was someone she really relied on. And so that would have been a very personal gift. There's also a gift described from William Cecil. He gave her a silver inkwell with a matching set of silver weights and measures, a knife, and a seal. So these were um, things that the queen could use as she worked alongside a pen that was made with this knife. It was a pen knife and a seal. That would be something she could use in conducting her business of governing. So that was something very meaningful to her from Cecil. Now, her pastry, her sergeant of the pastry, John Betts, also gave her a very special gift, a quince pie. So Elizabeth really loved these treats that would come from some of her household. In the 1577-78, Holidays, Elizabeth received a pot of fresh ginger and orange flowers and some March pain and a great pie of quinces from the sergeant of the pastry. And the apothecary that year sent three boxes of ginger candy and another of ginger and a third filled with orange candy. And so Elizabeth really loved personal treats, and she really loved sweet treats. She also, of course, loved jewelry and clothing. And in fact, in Tudor times, in Elizabeth's reign in particular, the sleeves were not attached to the bodice. They weren't sewn together. They were simply tied on. And so you could take the sleeve off and she gets several gifts of sleeves. So you could really update an outfit. You could easily change the sleeves. Now, one of the pieces of jewelry that she received, it's really quite extraordinary. And this was from Robert Dudley. This is in 1571. He is still, I believe by this time, trying to get her to marry him. But he gives her an amazing jewel. And here's how it's described. Quote, Having in the closing thereof, so it's a jeweled armlet. I should have said that. It's an armlet. Having in the closing thereof a clock. And in the forepart of the same, a fair diamond without a foil. Having thereat a round jewel fully garnished with diamonds and a pearl pendant. So this is the first description we have of an arm clock or an arm watch, or what we would call a wrist watch, the first record of Eng- in England of such an item. So, of course, it would be given by Robert Dudley to Elizabeth. Dudley himself was often in charge of the Christmas celebrations, and he was sort of showing off. He could run a court during that period of time. Um, 
Now, the reverse tells us what the queen gave people for Christmas. And so if we look at the 1562, we see that the queen gave Cecil and his wife, Mildred, a gilt gilt cover for the baptism of their young son. And unfortunately, we know that that child died young. But again, that's that's a personal gift from the queen to Cecil and his wife. Some of the gifts of the queen are not so personal. Gilt plate is a really common gift. Um, Some were more varied. Among her special favorites, Cecil was certainly a favorite. Um, But here's one of my um, favorite notes of the queen. So it's talking about the queen gave these gifts. Okay, these are the gifts she's given. And here's an entry. To Lord Robert Dudley, Master of the Horse, one gilt bull given to the queen by Sir Henry Jernigan that same day. So in other words, Henry Jernigan gives her a bowl and she says, oh, nice, put it right here. Oh, here, Dudley, you can have it. The same day she gets it, publicly she gives it to somebody else. So um, at least most of us try and hide our regifting a bit. In 1571, she does the same thing. Blanche Perry, we know the queen loved Blanche Perry. She was a dedicated servant. And she gave Elizabeth a jeweled angel containing diamonds and an emerald. And later that day, the queen gave that to Elizabeth Brooke, another maid of honor. Now, maybe Henry Jernigan and Blanche Perry thought, well, the queen loved and admired my gift so much that she graced it with her choice to give it to somebody else. But I still think it might have stung a bit. You spend all that time choosing a gift for the queen, and then she sort of publicly passes it off to somebody else that same day. Anyway, in 1588, again, Dudley is still giving the queen jewels. By this time, of course, he has married Latisse Knowles and has moved on, but he's still um, in favor, and that's one of the ways he stays in favor. Uh, The gift roll describes an, an elaborate jeweled necklace containing letters and his emblem, always promoting himself, along with a sun design around Elizabeth's picture. So the jewels were diamonds and a large ruby. So this was his final gift to her, his final Christmas gift, because he dies the next September. So he's given her this final beautiful gift. Um, In that same Christmas of 1588-89, others gave the queen jewelry. I'm sorry, 1587-88, others gave the queen jewelry. And Dudley's stepson, Robert Devereux, the Earl of Essex, who Dudley is kind of moving into his position in so many ways, um, gave the queen a hairpin covered in diamonds and sporting some hanging pendants, gold flowers, other diamonds, and a pearl. Of course, we know by this time Elizabeth is wearing wigs. But the idea of giving her hairpins as if it's her own hair and needs to be held back was quite flattering. And Sir Charles Howard, who's the Lord High Admiral and Baron of Effingham, gave her a cap covered in ships and anchors, the Lord High Admiral, of course, featuring diamonds and a ruby. So it was often that diamonds and rubies in particular, other emblems, pearls, the Queen loved pearls. So we do see these jewels, especially coming from some of her male admirers. And she too sometimes chose personal gifts and other times she just regifted. So it was quite a process 
for her as well. So we, we know that just as it is today, choosing the right gift was really important. And in Tudor times, it could be a bit risky. Um, Elizabeth wasn't shy when she didn't like a gift. She, like her father, could refuse one. And um, one time, uh, <laughs> Philip Sidney, who was out of favor, decided he'd try and get back in favor. So he sent the queen a diamond-studded whip to demonstrate his submissiveness to her will. That was a pretty public gamble. And in that case, she did accept it and all was well. However, Thomas Howard tried the same thing. The Duke of Norfolk, her relative who had been conspiring with Mary, Queen of Scots, and was in the tower and sent her jewelry as a, a New Year's Day gift. And she declined to accept that. And he was executed not long thereafter. So it continued through Elizabeth's reign, this accepting or rejecting of gifts, often having political status. So in addition to all that, I just want to sort of end with some highlights. Um, Henry VII, one of the standout gifts we learned that was given to him was a leopard. You will remember there was a menagerie of animals at the tower. And so sometimes, um, especially foreign courtiers might um, uh, give a wild animal. Uh, there's a bell of gold and a whistle given to baby Prince Edward, who would later become Edward VI, sort of a rattle. And you can see Hans Holbein in that wonderful portrait of baby Edward. He's holding sort of a gold bell kind of thing. So that may have been a favorite. And that portrait itself was Holbein's gift to Henry VIII, a portrait of Prince Edward. That way, you know, you're really doing well, Holbein. Um, in addition to that famous whip that Elizabeth got early in her reign, she received a, quote, fair lion. So from the beginning monarch, Henry VII, to the end, Elizabeth I of the Tudors, um, they were giving wild animals as pretty spectacular. And again, Elizabeth received these in public. And you can imagine the giver bringing a leopard to the privy chamber. Perhaps they just said, look out the window, there's your leopard. In any case, these are some of the gifts that were given and some of the traditions of gift giving during Tudor time. So if you perhaps have some after Christmas blues and you're wondering what to do, think about giving some gifts or having that kind of a party on New Year's, um, adding New Year's giving, gift giving to your tradition and grab some diamonds, some emeralds, maybe a whip and a lion, and you are well on your way. So that's gift giving Tudor style. Thank you so much for joining me for that. Again, thank you for all of your support during 2023, all of the hours you've listened, all of the patrons who are supporting me in so many ways. And please stay with me. Join me again next year. We have so much fun ahead as we keep shaking up history together. Thank you.